You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Uh, this week we are doing a deep dive and examination of the book Strong Towns: A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. And we're having friends of mine, colleagues of mine, people who have been part of not only putting the book together, but but really putting this whole body of thought together to come and chat about it. One of those, one of the one of the primary ones, one of the early, early people involved in this whole Strong Towns project is a guy named Andrew Burleson. Burleson serves as our board chair, has been with us for a long time, is in part of that infamous car ride that, uh, that John <laughs> Reuter talked about earlier in a prior podcast. And so it's with great pleasure that I invite Andrew back onto the podcast. Andrew, welcome, man. Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be back. This is probably like the fifth or sixth time we've done a Something podcast. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe fourth. Yeah, it's been a few. I think this is actually the second time that I've played the role of the interviewer. I think it is, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. we, did, we did one in New York in our Airbnb. We did mm, that's right. one in the car in Idaho. We did one on school. Uh, I was driving. You Let's were, just you were driving. Clear. <laughs> I think that was the one time you drove in the whole week. <laughs> the whole hour. The one hour that I drove. <laughs> yeah. uh, we did one on scooters recently. I think in the old days, we did two or three too. So it, this might be six or seven, man. Yeah, maybe it is. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah. I know we did one in Brainerd. Um, yep. At your office. But do you still have the setup where you have the two across the hall from each other? No, I moved up the hall a little bit. Um, it's kind of sad. I, you know, the long time people have been here, I was across the hall, which was 20 feet, 30 feet from the train tracks. So it's very Blues Brother-esque when the train would come by. It was very loud. I'm now on the other side of the hall. So there's uh, not only two walls, you know, three walls, basically, between me and the train track, but, you know, the, the door shut and all that. So it's a much different ambiance. You can still hear the train, but it's, it's distant. It used to be <laughs> overpowered. Like, you'd have to stop yeah, recording. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The, the first place I lived in Raleigh was right next to the train tracks. We moved there sight unseen. Well, my wife had seen it. She had she had moved out to Raleigh uh, about six weeks before I followed. And, you know, part of her job was to go out there and find an apartment for us. She calls me, you know, when we don't have that much time to spare. I'm, I'm moving truck is showing up and I'm going to be out there joining her with, you know, maybe a week to spare. And she's like, I finally found it. I found us a good place. It's a great deal. It's super cheap, which is what we really needed at that moment in time. But it's still, but it's still pretty much right in the middle of town. It's like a good location. It's, we won't be driving everywhere all the time. It'll be great. It'll be you know, easy commutes to everywhere we want to be. I'm so excited. And I'm like, okay, this is great. Let me get out there. And I'm like, uh, hey, Pam, <laughs> did you notice that this is right next to train? And when I say right next to, I mean, 30 feet outside of our window is a ma major, major rail line, like the major freight and passenger rail line right through. And she's like, oh, no, I never noticed that. Like, oh, uh, you'll notice it tonight. Yeah. Yeah. 
It was so cheap because it was right next to it. But you know what I learned really quickly living there? It's a no horn zone. And the freight trains, it was like a distant thunderstorm or something. I would hear them, but it was mostly like that low rumble. So it was only the passenger trains that were really like obnoxiously loud. And those were only during the day. So at night, they would roll by. And after probably three, four nights, I didn't even hear it anymore. So, you know, it turned out to be fine. It turned out to be a great deal. So she was right. I should have known. Your wife's always right. No, the w- wife's always right. And I, I, as you were describing this, I'm thinking of my own wife, who's like, yeah, I could, I could tolerate that to save 50 bucks a month. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it was, it was about like that. Very yeah. frugal. Right, exactly. We're by the train here too, our houses. I got used to it immediately. So not a big deal. And we don't have the silent, it, the horn, you know, the whistle blows all the way through town. It's, it's, it's nasty. That part takes a little bit more adjusting, but uh, yeah, you can still get used to it. I sleep right through it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now I believe we are supposed to dive into a chapter. Is that right? We'll do whatever one you want, man. Okay. Now see, I was told that I had to to have a specific chapter and I was originally going to do chapter seven. And then I was told I needed to do chapter six because someone else was already doing chapter seven. Really? And I read, I read and enjoyed the entire book. So I said, honestly, I'm happy to do any chapter, but I, I guess I should probably confirm. I've got chapter six pulled up right here in front of me. This is rational responses. It's, it's a big juicy one. So I'm ready to go if you're ready. Well, let's do both. Cause I, I, I think six is six is a chapter that I wasn't intending to write. But I had to transition. See, the, the first half of the book would have been the book a decade ago, right? It's the whole backdrop and the Ponzi scheme and the setup and like why we're screwed. But then the second half of the book is like, all right, and here's how we you know, pick up the pieces and here's how we do things different and here's a new approach. And I found I needed this transition. <laughs> uh, and, and I actually meant it to be like a thousand words and it wound up to be like 5,000. Um, because yeah, it's one of your longer chapters, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it was trying to tie these two together and get into this idea that, that you kind of, you know, you and John and I kind of debated back and forth on that trip in Idaho, which is how do you respond? And I kept saying like, there's no solution. And you guys were like, well, there has to be a solution. And I'm like, well, there, there's well, no, I mean, let's be clear. <laughs> there didn't have to be a solution, but I think we both were strongly aligned that if we could come up with some solutions, it would go a long way right. to help build the movement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you can't really just be like the purveyor of doom. Uh, you've got to actually have like a plan for people to, to, to work on. So that At was, least if you want them to be happy. <laughs> right. Well, if you want them to, to, yeah, to buy in in any way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this was, I mean, although, you know, don't, don't discount those first hundred apocalyptic uh, bunker dwellers that we had along for the ride. I mean, are, are some of our most devoted and, and serious people. So they're out there. It just, no we doubt. wanted to try and reach. I mean, our mission has been forever to be a million people who care. And we knew it was going to be really hard to go from a hundred to a million if we didn't have any light at the end of the tunnel. So <laughs> Right, right. So this chapter is like my genuflect to that transition. It's the transition we all made which is, all right, we're struggling with this. We also have this great body of knowledge over here, uh, the new urbanists, the tactical urbanism concept, Joe Minicozzi's work. How do we take this really good stuff and turn it into a, a program and then transition you know, one body of thought to another? So if you want to do seven, let's do seven, because I, I get real excited about chapter seven. 
quite no, no, I'm already I'm already teed up. So we're gonna go we're gonna go six. We'll try and lead six into seven. I'll try and keep us moving. Okay. At a good at a good pace. We'll see if I can do it. Let's do it. Um, as you said, it's the it's the pivot the genuflect from. In the first half of the book, we've really explored uh, what is this problem that America's facing and. There's a lot of nuance to it, but if I was going to try and summarize it in a sentence, which I'm about to try and do, it's that starting around the 30s and accelerating after that, we completely reinvented the way we all live. And it turns out that that way of living doesn't pay for itself, doesn't break even. And so eventually we're going to run out of money or resources, whatever you want to call it. Eventually it's not going to work anymore. And we're going to have to do something about it. As, as an extremely abridged summary, does that seem fair to you? Yeah. It's a development pattern that consumes more resources than it, than it creates or provides productivity. Yeah. yeah. So we, we would say that's not sustainable. Now, I know sustainability is often kind of a buzzword where it usually is more of an ecological context that we're talking about it. But of course, it matters for, for human things, too. If we keep spending more money than we earn, eventually we're going to have a serious problem. Or as you, you pointed out, at the beginning of chapter six, at a certain point, it becomes a predicament. That that transition from a problem to a predicament is kind of important because when people ask us for what's the fix, well, here we are. Um, there There isn't really a fix in the sense of what can we do. And I, I remember you and I having a lot of hard conversations early on where, you know, and I was with you on this, but what people are asking is, well, how do we fix it? What they really mean deep down is, okay, well, how do I keep living my life exactly the way I'm living and have all the stuff you just said not be true? Right. <laughs> right. It's like, well, <laughs> that's, we're not going to, it's not going to work. So you opened and you talked about this transition from understanding this isn't a problem, it's a predicament. And from there, you talked about how we're just not going to be able to maintain every piece of what we built. And I, I'm curious if you want to expound on that for just a minute when you're driving around all over the country or flying around all over the country and you're seeing this, you're seeing this firsthand, this incredible quantity of low value, low return on investment development that we have, and we're just not going to be able to maintain it all. But nobody emotionally wants to hear that the piece of dirt you live on or work on or, or visit from time to time or whatever it may be, whatever attachment you may have, you know, may not be maintained. That seems to be something people really struggle to grapple with. So I'm curious if you want to start there for a minute in terms yeah. of. I think that was one of the hardest parts just for me as a person to come to grips with because my wife and I had built this house. You've been there, my old house. You know, we, we built this place on this five acre lot out in the woods and, you know, this was my early engineer days. And we really thought, you know, we had made it. I mean, we built it. Like when I say we built a house, it's not like we hired a contractor to come out and build it. We did, we did hire many contractors to help, but like I was the general contractor. I pounded nails. I ran wires. I did plumbing work. I mean, we literally built a house. We lived there as a married couple for a decade. We had kids. We raised them to be uh uh, grade school kids at that point where we moved, I was very empathetic with the idea that, you know, I'm looking at this place that I've poured all these memories into and all this kind of passion into. The idea that I was trying to reconcile was that I don't think this house survives. Like, I don't think 50 years from now, this house is here. And it's certainly not here in the, in the way that it's here now with a you know, paved roads uh, that, that are just bizarre all the way out to this place, you know, a quick 15 minute trip into town. 
And so I had to put myself in the shoes of the people who are going to be experiencing this outcome and ask myself some hard questions. You know, how, how would they process this? How, how are they going to, uh, to deal with this? And I took some solace in the fact that we've been here before. We have, not necessarily you and me, but people alive today experienced this in the 1950s and the 1960s as we got up and walked away from investments in the central city, said, you know, these are no longer good investments. These investments out here look like good investments. And we're going to kind of abandon uh, these things that I'm positive, you know, a decade or two before they, they made that choice, they would never have considered leaving. So yes, problems have solutions and predicaments have outcomes. We've now crossed over into the predicament phase and there's outcomes we're just going to have to deal with. That being said, we've been here before. We've done this before. And there's definitely a precedent. I mean, there's a precedent in suburbs just in general, because when they start to go into decline, the affluent pick up and leave. They move on to the next suburb. They move on to the next place. We've been here before. I think once you get that realization, the idea of it kind of working out this way is not hard. Plus, you've been to Detroit. I don't know if you've been to any of the cities around Detroit, a Lansing, a, uh, I'm trying to think of some other ones that I've been to in this place that, that come to mind. You see it like in living color there. You can even go here to my hometown, which I think is generally successful or, or certainly in that illusion of wealth phase. And you can see the parts that no longer are, and they've been largely abandoned. And these are places that you know, my grandparents would have looked at as success and, and, and prosperous. So I feel like we've been here before. And once the initial shock of it wears off, it's not hard to picture it happening again. And you talked about if we look at this on paper as sort of an economic thing, well, there's been a lot of bad investments. They're not going to pan out. That means they're going to start to unwind, uh, that you could start to see this as, okay, well, so it's like, it's like, you know, trimming the garden or weeding, weeding out the garden. It's way overdue, but we're going to be healthier at the end of it. But there's these incredible social costs that are going to come along with this, that we're not going to be able to ignore. And I think the fact that we have that precedent of the hollowing out of the center cities after the war actually makes that easy to visualize because there's a lot of places that are still hollowed out, you know, that you go back. I mean, like you said, in Detroit, parts of Detroit, and you go to so many cities where the center city is not a really nice place to be still to this day. And that can kind of get lost in the headlines of, you know, oh, the major urban centers, you know, Chicago, Miami, New York, like all these places have had these urban renaissance, but not everywhere has had an urban renaissance and especially not to equal degrees. There's a lot of places where it's a little better maybe now than it was 10, 20 years ago, but not that much better. And we all know what it was like. And especially, I mean, depending on your generation, I would say my parents' generation as a baby boomers, they, they have this very negative connotation around the word downtown. Mine likewise. But when we told them we were moving to town, they're like, what are you doing? Why? Like, why would you do this? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Because to them, I mean, despite seeing it with their own eyes in, you know, in many cases to them, downtown means blight and desolation. And so, you know, it's just going to be that, but in a different location, you go into talking about this as the long decline, that it's not in the book, you, you point out that a lot of people think, oh, okay, well, then there's going to be some giant collapse and maybe, maybe there could be, but that 
there's a lot of reasons to think it's probably not going to be like a bridge that suddenly fails, you know, and collapses down into the canyon in a big cloud of dust, but that it's likely to be like a road that just, you know, once was a nice road and it wears out and it slowly starts to be full of potholes. And eventually it's, you know, really not much better than gravel. You know, at a certain point, it's worse than gravel. <laughs> at a certain point with a road like that, you want to actually go break up the remaining bits of asphalt because they're just kind of in the way now. We've seen roads like that. I think most of us can imagine that. There's this, you know, idea that's a little hard to grasp that there was a point in time in the United States where there was, it would have been difficult to find a road that was in that kind of bad condition. And now they're everywhere. Well, that's the preview of, I think, what's coming to more and more and more places. Not just even roads, but like you and I have been on subway systems where, you know, the elevator is out for nine months. You know, there have been all these stories about San Francisco, where you're, where you're living now, where literally like essential parts of the BART system are offline and have been offline as long as people can remember. You, you just hack it and become like used to this decline. We've all experienced that to some degree, right? Oh, for sure. And it's interesting. I mean, in San Francisco, it's actually interesting. In many ways, uh, well, San Francisco is a, is a very specific case that has a whole lot of... Uh, extremes to it. But in many ways, when we look at the kind of place that does financially pay its own bills, most of San Francisco is relatively high density, relatively high mix of activities, relatively viable in terms of the ratio of private investment to public investment. Even there, they struggle to keep up. And I think that that goes to kind of show that so it's not – I would not say that at this point in time, San Francisco's in decline. I mean, economically, it's really booming, but they're still struggling in many ways to just keep up with the growth that they're facing. That's a place that, from a from a physical point of view, is in a lot less trouble than most places. So I think that in many ways, that just illustrates how acute it is. Yeah. Well, and you look at a place like San Francisco, and I think it's the fast growth and the boom that is kind of keeping things from having to be reckoned, Right. Um, you know, that, that growth kind of covers up a lot of ills and that's what we see in, in a lot of places is when you can generate that quick growth, it gives you the chance to overcome, basically not correct some of the problems that you've dealt with. I've always said that a city like San Francisco, if you actually did a reset, if you cleared away, I'm not suggesting this as policy. I'm suggesting this as like a, an outcome that may to some extent be inevitable, but you clear away the debt you clear away the pensions, you clear away the bureaucracy that maybe is not being helpful. You kind of reset back to a more starting condition. And uh, San Francisco runs really well. I mean, it, it actually functions really well because it's a well-organized, well-built, productive kind of place. You do that same thing in the, you know, th the third ring suburb outside of San Francisco. It's toast. It's done. It's just not a the things that they're suffering from are very different and structurally they're just not able to, to be reset in a sense. Well, and you explain this in the book, but there's this enormous wealth transfer where we intentionally arranged large chunks of society to drain wealth out of the center cities, places like San Francisco that had become very, very prosperous and spread it around to the countryside. And if you were to take away that flow of money, I mean, a, a place like San Francisco City, I would say, well, the Muni would run a lot better, but I don't know about the BART. You know, like the regional, the regional system might be in some trouble. The local 
you know, city system would, would probably be better off. I think that's a huge point. Let me give you an example here from Minnesota, because we're often uh, held up as this, this stellar example of regionalism. Because in the 1970s, we went in and said, we're going to create this regional taxing regime uh, where money will, essentially the, the idea was we would tax the suburbs and the commercial growth specifically in the suburbs, and then use that money to bring back to the central city to prop up neighborhoods that have been disinvested and experienced decline. It was a little bit like, you know, the counter of the urban abandonment problem. The thing is, they wrote the formulas, and uh, now today, the same formulas yield a completely different result. The central city are actually getting taxed, and that money is going out to the second ring, third ring suburbs to prop up like the worst kind of development because, you know, the flows have essentially started equalizing and that illusion of wealth in the, out on the edge is worn off. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think that the, uh, I don't know the names of the system. You just used it. The, the, the city. Oh buses. yeah. Yeah. The local one is called Muni. Yeah. The Muni. That's just the city system. So there's two trains, there's two subways. Uh, two train systems, two bus systems, two every. Well, actually, there's a lot more than two. But <laughs> the ones that I interact with <laughs> are on a daily basis. I, I live in the city itself, so I use the Muni primarily, and then the BART, which is the regional transport, the Bay Area regional transportation is uh, or regional transit, whichever it is, serves the surrounding region. It only has a few stops in the city. Now, the BART is a nice system in terms of it's the fastest way to get around the region by far. It is very high capacity you know, relatively modern trains. I mean, now it's starting to get a little dated at this point because it's sort of at the end of its first life cycle. It's in general a good system and a huge number of people depend on it. It's an interesting case too because there are a lot of little clusters of vibe. I mean, you described this in this very chapter about Detroit having pockets of viability. And there are a lot of pockets of viability, uh, I would say, around the Bay Area that are oftentimes centered on these train stations. And a, a lot of times, it's it, in this case, the cause and effect are the other way around. Usually the pocket was already viable, and that's why the train station was put there. Right. Um, Not in California. Know, and, <laughs> well, no, but in, in this, in the Bay Area specifically, it's old enough that many of them did did work in that direction. That they were 1800s towns, much more like Brainerd. Now, but it's a very small nucleus in many, many of them. Okay, so you have a little teeny tiny seed of a well functioning place, and that's where there was a train station a long time ago. So that was where it was easy to put a commuter train station in in the 70s or whenever they did it. I mean, it, it depends on which train you're talking about. It's, so it's an interesting place. It's a, it's a, it's a real hodgepodge. Um, but it's not the best example. You, you gave Detroit as, as a different example. Both of those are extremes in different ways. Most places, your Omaha's and your Dallas and you know your Nashville's are a lot more kind of the norm that people are experiencing today in most of the country. You, you made a point, and I want to try and segue because this is kind of like the next major point you made, which is that in most of those more normal places, your Phoenix, you know, whatever it may be, Salt Lake City, there's fundamentally this challenge, which is that in these post-war places, the automobile is your ante to be able to live a productive life. That's a direct quote from the book. I think that's beautiful, by the way, because what, what you go on to say is it's extremely difficult to hold a job, find food, educate children, seek medical assistance, to be part of a church or civic organization, or do any of the routine things that humans do without a motor vehicle. If you burden poor families with the cost of an automobile and it then it starves them of essential resources, accelerating decline. So that's, I think, one of the most fascinating 
bits of this whole transition from sit- inner city areas, which were built before cars were dominant, and therefore are somewhat, not necessarily very nicely, but somewhat navigable by pedestrians without a car, and at least compact, so the distances involved are, are manageable. And now you transition the people who are struggling to live in an area where you can't get by without a car. And it's a much more difficult struggle. Right. I think this is one of those realizations that helped me uh, really make the connection with the human habitat part of this. Because when, when you look back at traditional cities, what you recognize very quickly, and I, I, I wrote about Pompeii in an earlier chapter because I spent a lot of time there actually walking around just looking at stuff. And it, it was astounding to me because you can take, in a traditional city, you can take the growth out you can take the like outward prosperity out and the place won't necessarily thrive and it won't last indefinitely, but it doesn't fall apart. It will take some time. There's a, there's a quote in a Malcolm Gladwell piece about Nassim Taleb uh, where he says, you know, we, we can't blow up. We can just bleed to death. If you look at the traditional city, what you're looking at is a system that will not blow up, but it could bleed to death. If you have a long enough, sustained enough period of decline, it could become a real difficult place. But it's designed to basically withstand long periods of of non-growth or long periods of of non-prosperity. The stuff we built post-World War II, I mean, the the auto-oriented stuff that dominates our landscape and, and dominates much of California, for sure, not only do you have that anti, but you have like the built-in assumption that the people who live there will always be affluent and that there'll always be more affluent people moving in. So in a sense, it's a double assumption of a sunny day, right? Like there'll never be a rainy day. There'll never be a cloudy day. There's just going to be sunny days and everybody here will be sunny and we'll all be happy and we'll all (laughs) keep going in the right direction. And And no one tells you it's actually just foggy all the time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But the problem is, as soon as you run into, and we saw this in in 08, as soon as you run into a day that's not sunny, it doesn't even have to be like, you know, a torrential downpour or a blizzard or like, you know, some tsunami or something. It just has to be like a not sunny day. Things start to fall apart very quickly. And that's the fragile nature of it. Once you ponder dropping poor people, forget wealthy people, forget affluent, forget the, the middle class, um, which I think, you know, middle class people are, have a lot of stress in the system. Let's not kid ourselves. But, but when we think about a reset and we think about, you know, whether it's gentrification or, or, or what other effect takes place where suburban poverty starts to rise and the people who are there get trapped in it and people who are in other places get shoved out to those more suburban places, unlike the central city where you, you could withstand long periods of time without growth or without prosperity and still have it function, uh, the places we built post-World War II, they just fall apart. They just cease to work because they're so dependent on that high level of affluence. I wrote the story in there. I, I tried to lay out the description of the poor person uh, having to essentially walk to the store to get groceries. And I, I know you've done it. You know, you've walked through these environments. You, oh, yeah. You lived oh, yeah. in Houston for a long time. Uh, you've lived and in I Austin. Walked, yep. I, I lived in Houston with one car and uh, between me and my wife, and it turns out that that's not enough cars in Houston. So right. <laughs> we had a lot of uh, being clever that we had to do to figure out uh, how to how to get things done. Yeah. 
I've walked through these landscapes too. And, and the thing that you, when you stop and look around and recognize just how difficult it is and we're like middle-class people with options. I mean, we could call an Uber if we had to. We, we could, you know. <laughs> Although I lived in Houston long enough ago that Uber wasn't an option at the time. It would have made things a lot easier, actually. <laughs> but that's, again, in the case of me who, you know, I was never that broke that I couldn't possibly call an Uber if I really needed to. Even at that time that I was living in Houston and, and you know, wasn't exactly prosperous, but I was never in the the hard straights that a lot of people are in. Um, right. Well, I, I walk to work here. I carry my stuff in a backpack and I, I walk. My office here is between two of the poorest neighborhoods in my town. And these are walkable urban neighborhoods and they're, they're absolutely despotic to walk through in, in many places. And I, I watch because the South side lost their grocery store. So the only grocery store is on the North side. And every day when I'm walking to work, there's just this steady stream of people who walk a couple miles from the, the South side neighborhood to the North side neighborhood. And they're going to the pharmacy, they're going to the grocery store. These are in urban neighborhoods. Now go another two miles out of town uh, to where we've built some of these apartment complexes that, oh, by the way, you know, are well buffered and uh, have all the stormwater berms and everything. So we don't offend anybody. You know, you've got the trailer parks and all that stuff out there. You change this affluence equation and the people out there right now are already struggling. Take away the ability to get around by car easy. And it's, I don't know how you, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you would even start to do it. Well, and I think that's where we kind of come back to. There will be some people in some places who figure it out, but a lot of those places, the answer will be you, you don't, you figure out a way to get out. Earlier in the book, I talk about the 20 to 1, 40 to 1 math problem. The idea that to be stable, uh, we really need a between a 20 to 1 and a 40 to 1 private investment to public investment ratio. If you got $20 of private investment, it really can support a dollar of public investment. And that's on the, the small side. When I look at a city like mine and recognize that at best, and I, I think this is even stretching it, we're one to one. You know, we've got a we've got a dollar private investment supporting a dollar public investment. What you realize is that if the tax base either needs to grow by twenty times, <laughs> or the stuff that we've promised that we'll maintain is going to shrink by ninety five percent, find a moderation point between those. Let's say the stuff we maintain shrinks by fifty percent, and, and, and somehow amidst that decline we're able to double our tax base. Like, I don't know how that would mathematically happen, but let's pretend we could somehow pull that off. That still is a dramatic shift. And I think that's the minimum you'd be at to be viable, right? Right. Yeah. Oh, and I mean, it's so fascinating because you can see this from both directions. D doubling that productivity means, and I know you talk about it in the book that, that you don't like density. It's an overly simple heuristic. And also it conjures up, I think, bad pictures in people's minds because most people, when you start saying density, they think of height. They think of skyscrapers and high-rise buildings. And really density, it, it just means how much activity is going on per acre. And it doesn't necessarily imply anything about the look and feel, at least for a long you, – you get pretty far down the density scale before you actually notice the height start to kick in. And also it can be deceiving. You can have places where there's tall buildings and it's actually not that dense because there's nothing in between those tall buildings. Can I iterate on that just for a sec? Yeah, yeah, please, please. I was at a APA conference, American Planning Association conference in like 2000, 
it might've been like 2002 or something like that. And I went to this one presentation and the title of it was sprawl is good. And it was a debate between uh, this like, you know, so-called pro sprawl person and an anti sprawl person. And they were going back and forth and the pro sprawl guy, I don't even know who it was. Like I didn't register with me and I don't remember, but he was fascinating because what he did is he showed old cities, old, old, like pre-automobile cities. And he showed how they were built. And he said, all these cities had what we today would call sprawl. Now, let me use it in my language. They, they had outward expansion. They, they all incrementally were growing up, incrementally becoming more intense, but at the same time, they were going incrementally out. So they had this development pattern that if you're only worried about density, was not very dense. It was very low density, but it worked. And here's why it worked. And, and we can thank Ian for the whole party analogy. The reason it works is because they didn't have sewer. They didn't have water. Right. They didn't have paved roads. They didn't have right. a fire department. They didn't have library. They didn't have police protection. They didn't have all those. So you can have, I mean, I go around the suburbs today. You can absolutely have that level of density. That's no problem at all. You just can't do it with the level of services that you've got. Right. It's totally possible. In fact, cities used to have this. This is, this is actually where the poor people lived. They would go out on the edge, build something modest, and then, you know, as their efforts kind of aggregated together, start to generate a place and some momentum. And then, and this goes to Ian's party analogy, you could start to layer on top of that all these services that people liked, you know? Right. Well, and it's interesting that that, that idea, you can have the lower density without the services. But we talk about density. I feel like intensity is a little bit uh, better or just activity is a better word for most people when you're trying to visualize. I guess I especially like activity. Our friend Andrew Price has done some beautiful drawings that show, you know, a four-way intersection in just about any part of suburbia. We don't really need to pick on any one region because it's everywhere. And the amount of land in, you know, say four acres is probably not a, you know, probably about the right amount. And it's, you know, four little buildings. It's a gas station, a, a drive through restaurant, you know, and a tiny strip mall that's got three little businesses in it. And then it's, you know, the rest is basically concrete and grass and there's no activity. Now there's people that pass through obviously in those cars, but there's no actual human activity on the ground happening. And, and to me, activity is the, is the, the, the easy way to visualize when you talk about your town needing to you know, reduce the served area by probably half and increase the tax base by half. That means the activity. That means that parking lot needs to have two or three more businesses fill in and share all that concrete so that now you have a lot more activity to pay for maintaining all that concrete. And uh, it's kind of incredible because when you're accustomed to driving around, you get in this, it's very easy to get in this mindset of thinking, well, it's all built out. And then if you get out of your car and you walk, you know, even a quarter of a mile, you realize it's all empty. There's nothing here. And it's a very shocking thing to have that moment of realization of I could so easily, I mean, anything, pick any activity in the world, it would fit easily. You could, you could double the amount of activity in just about any place you go in North America without really making much of a dent in the system. And I mean, I think your point ultimately is that if we're going to maintain anything close to the level of service we have today, we're going to have to significantly increase the amount of activity in the areas we continue to serve. And then along with that, there's going to be a lot of areas that 
either stop having that level of service and or just completely fade away. I feel like there's a there's a, a gravity analogy here somewhere. As you're describing this, I'm thinking about, you know, the the interaction between two objects and there's a certain gravitational force, but if they're too far, the force becomes weak. If they're too small, the force becomes weak. I almost think what what we've done with the suburban development pattern, what we've done with this auto-oriented and and when I say that, I mean what we've done on the edges of our cities, but also how we've denuded our cities to actually follow the same kind of pattern is we've just reduced that that interaction so much, that force, that pull that, between different bodies. And we've kind of just made them all floating independent of each other. <laughs> right. We've lost that interaction that kind of binds it all together. And so when you say activity, the physics in my brain is like thinks about energy and gravity we've really spread things out in such a way that you're almost at absolute zero. It's, right. it's like, it's right. like well, the universe is spreading apart and, and it's going to get to absolute zero at some point, which is no activity. You know, It's a great analogy. And I think, I mean, years and years ago when I was doing consulting, I used to talk to people about the four environments and this idea that there's the built environment, the social environment, the economic environment, and the natural environment. And each one of those exerts a kind of pull. And that the, the combined pull, which can be positive or negative, it could be a pull or a push, those things together create property value. So if you're trying to think of real estate investment, it's helpful to think of those things. And people sort of understand this. Well, if there's good jobs out in the, you know, the whatever, the Bakken Shale in North Dakota, well, then a lot of people go out there, even though they might really not prefer to. <laughs> right. Because exactly. Yeah. That economic environment is creating a, that pull and it's enough to overcome whatever they think about the winter or whatever, whatever, whatever their other objections may be, the lack of stuff out there. Right. Something's creating that pull. And in most healthy cities, you've got a little bit of all the above. You know, maybe there's some, you know, a, a nice river that goes nearby and that that created some economic opportunity with, you know, way back in the day, that would have been a nice place for boats to come in and go. Or maybe you had a rail stop and those things created some built environment that created some attraction. And then once you have families that settle there, then that creates a social environment and these things kind of build on each other. And when they're so spread apart, that attraction needs, if you're going to hold it together, you have to have some artificial energy source that like holds it together. Right. And that's right now it's basically transfer spending, you know, and it's mostly debt. So we're mostly transferring future wealth into the present to build infrastructure that doesn't make sense to bind together these places that really don't have any critical mass and otherwise wouldn't hang together. Right. That's, you know, that's exactly that's a very what's going on. Way, <laughs> it's a very geeky way to describe it, but that's kind of the, the, the mental model I have. I would tell people during the curbside chat talk, like you said earlier, go out and walk those spaces. By the way, isn't it always a tell um, when someone says, oh, our city's built out? To, to me, it's like, <laughs> if someone says that to me, I'm like, yeah, okay, you're clueless. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, I tell people, go out and walk it. But when you walk it, if you're walking along a street with, uh, you know, that's paved, that's got fire hydrants along it and manhole covers, so you know there's sewer and water there, it's got curb and sidewalks, you know, there's a drainage system, just go ahead and, and in your brain say, you know, l- let's say 3,000 a foot. So you're like, Every time you take a step, go 3,000, 6,000, 9,000, 12,000, 15,000. And that's what you've got in the ground. And then look adjacent to that and see what's there. And what's there. Who are you going to build this to? Yeah. Yeah. But what, what's there for most of it is nothing. Like literally nothing. It's, it's, the, it's the green space between the, the Target and the Arby's, you know? 
you and I have both been to, to Boston. And I, I think the last time I was in Boston was with Minicozy. I was overwhelmed by, mm-hmm. we sat and pointed out to each other, these, these little buildings that they had nestled into these, you know, you'd have a, you'd have a, yeah, the gaps, the gaps, they'd, they'd fill every gap and they'd fill every gap with these like six story. It would be like 15 feet wide by six stories tall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It, what it is, is they're squeezing you know, every bit of value out of that, that wealth they put in the ground. Yeah. You know, I've enjoyed living in San Francisco because there's a, a bit of that there too. There, there is, one of my yeah. favorite little burger joints was in some underutilized alley that 70, 80 years ago, somebody squeezed a shed into and it's called native burger. And I mean, it's a shed, it's a shed between two nice apartment buildings, but it, they make great hamburgers. It's just about wide enough for two people to, you know, stretch their arms across and deep enough to have maybe 30 or 40 people inside. And you know what? Like the guy who owns that little burger bar, you know, he makes it work. He's probably for generations made a fortune off of that. And the funny thing is for the amount of services that that person requires, communal services, like the public services that would be provided, um, pays way disproportionate amount of taxes. I mean, that for the community, that is an awesome investment, right? Right. Yeah. That's a really good segue into chapter seven. We're really like basically halfway into chapter seven at this point. You you talk about there the pictures of Brainerd from the past and looking at it and and just visualizing how this town that you knew so well had this past that you didn't recognize at all because you were looking at the center of gravity in Brainerd of 1904 with the you, – you said the stores uh, – <laughs> that. The structures themselves were grand with two and three stories with strong vertical proportions and pleasant symmetry, all with subtle ornamentation. The stores opened onto the street with large windows and sometimes awnings and, awnings and balconies. And she were in awe of that place. And then you realize it was a photo of your hometown from 1904. And <laughs> I, I love that. This is one of my favorite stories. This is part of all of your curbside chats of just reflecting back that, I mean, we have precedent for all of this. There's nothing new under the sun, as they say. So in the same way that we have precedent for this disinvestment and what does it look and feel like, we have a lot of precedent for, well, how do you go from this emptiness to fill it in with something? Well, you know, our lumberjack ancestors knew how to do it. They they lined up some wood sheds and spent just a little bit of money putting a nice front on them. You know, most of those buildings, the reason they didn't last is because they were cheap. Right. That's exactly true. It's funny how many people today say, well, we just need higher building standards. I'm like, no, everybody used to build cheap crap, um, <laughs> you know, to start with, because they planned on it not lasting very long and they planned on replacing it with something nice. One of my favorites, I, we, we, I keep coming back to San Francisco because it's, it has good examples for this kind of thing. One of my favorites is the Palace of Fine Arts, which is a lovely building from the, I think it was the Columbian Exhibition or one of the uh, World's Fair type things. And I, I, other people who are longer term, more committed San Franciscans can be upset with me for not remembering this perfectly off the top of my head. But as early 1900s, one of the exhibitions, and it was very beautiful. So they decided to keep it. But the problem is all the buildings for that whole exhibition were built out of cheap, you know, timber and plaster and designed to last six months. So there's a plaque outside of this building and it's still around today that says this was designed to last six months, but the city rallied to keep it because they thought it was so beautiful. But of course, by 1950, it had rotted, literally it had rotted. There was very little left. And so they commissioned at a great cost. They 
commissioned to some architects and artists and everything to go back and carefully measure from the original drawings and from what pieces remained to make molds. And then they went back and built it in steel and concrete and restored it. But, but they didn't restore it. They didn't, when we think restore, we usually think, you know, put a new roof on it. They literally scraped off the rotted remains of this kind of what had been beautiful but was now crumbled cheap stuff and recast it in, in concrete that's actually meant to last now. And it's beautiful. It's a landmark and it's on all these postcards and everything. But it, to me, it's a funny indication of, you know, the people of that age thought, well, we're hosting a, you know, this is the equivalent of hosting the Olympics, right? And they're like, well, this thing's only going to last the summer. So we built this beautiful palace, but we built it out of sticks and plaster, right? <laughs> you and I have been to Disneyland together a couple times. You're looking at a stage, basically. It's a it's a movie set when you're walking down Main Street. They're they're fake false facades. It's it's uh you know done in forced perspective. You recognize that okay, they built a fake city, right? Sure. But what they did to figure this out is they actually studied the old tricks that our ancestors, and I'll just reiterate in the largest possible sense of the word, you know, our ancestors around the world used for for thousands of years. Here's how they would take mud and sticks and, and, and homemade bricks and turn what would be a junky thing into something really cool. It really is. I mean, I, I've gotten some of this from you. Uh, we spent some time together. Oh, no, you weren't in New Orleans with me. You were in, in South Beach with me. That year before when I went to New Orleans with the, the Next Gen, the CNU Next Gen group, I got this amazing tour by Ed Erfurt and some other people showing me all the little details in New Orleans. And a lot of this stuff is not, I mean, well, when it, when it got knocked down, it, it cost 10 times to rebuild. This is stuff that actually, from a construction standpoint, was not cheap. It was just done at a period of time when they had essentially this skill and this knowledge and this way of looking at the world. I think that's the frustrating thing that you and I both share a frustration with is like, this is not hard. You know, <laughs> well, you said the illiterate lumberjacks that built my town that were in this photo that I literally growing up as a kid, we used to go out to eat here after church with my grandparents. And I walked by that photo 50, 60 times in my life. And, and never, it never occurred to me that this old timey, old fashioned photo was my hometown. It didn't resemble it in any way. Um, you know, yet these people who you know, genetically are the same as you and me, mentally have the same capacities as we do, had a completely different understanding of how to build a place. And they built this place that was marvelous. One that if we set out to do it today, could not do except through like massive, massive expenditure to overcome our inadequacy, you know? Well, and, and all the regulatory barriers that we've put in place. Right. Right. There's a lot of these examples of cities adopting their first, you know, modern zoning ordinances in the 40s and 50s and 60s. I mean, just depending on how, you know, how early they got into the game, where they show pictures of all of this traditional old stuff you're talking about, and they label it as blight. You know, they label it as, you know, that gross, nasty stuff. Well, you know, some of what they were depicting was the cheap investments people had made on the edge of town that nobody had really ever followed up with a second wave of investment and they were falling apart. So they, they were kind of blight, you know, but then they label the entire pattern 
as this idea is an idea of blight. And so we have this new idea, which is, you know, the parking in front and the, the, the box of shops back behind the parking lot and all this stuff. And this is the future. This is progress. This is my, so we're not going to allow anybody to build this old stuff anymore. And it's funny because nowadays we just, just assume, well, that's what everybody wants, right? We just build that because that's what everybody likes. But back then, it was actually a very concerted effort for them to say, "Hey, all you, hey, all you illiterate lumberjacks, you know, the second generation of, of these people, you know, you can't build this crap anymore." And the people of the day would have been like, "What do you mean we can't build this crap anymore? Like, what are we supposed to do?" And the enlightened city planners said, "Well, we build this bright new future instead." And I mean, the thing is to to to, to be fair to them. They had a vision that they felt was really compelling and beautiful and was going to be wonderful, and they had drafted it all out, and they sold the public. They didn't – this is not something where they had to really coerce people. I mean they did coerce people legally, but you know, it's not like – It's not like this was a hard sell, right? It wasn't that hard of a sell, right? Like they, there were some skeptics. There were some people who didn't buy it or who didn't think that that's you – know, that the government was, was – you know, doing more, going further than they needed to go. But overall, the American public thought that that, that vision does look pretty great. Let's do it. You but, know, but isn't that where we got the the whole idea of like you're against progress? I don't know as I've seen in history or in narrative or or you know fictional or not any talk about people being anti progress really before this you know revolution post war. And and that was where you kind of had, um, and I'm 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 I can't believe I'm going to do this because I absolutely adore Walt Disney. But you know you can see this in like the Disney cartoons of the age. Oh yeah, the Highway of Tomorrow. Well, yeah. I, well, they talk about you know the city of progress, and uh, you know here's it's all about progress. And and even <laughs> you go to, I think one of the city one of the things that they were going to build was like Progress City. Um, you know the whole idea was. We were leaving behind the vestiges of of the past, and we were going to use you know new technology, new ideas, um, new ways of doing things, progress to fix the human condition. And yeah, you know, and it's funny because there's this notion there that they I think they had very strongly, which is that the pre pre modern city was this messy organic thing that was bad because it wasn't engineered. It hadn't been designed, right? And that we could fix this because going forward, we could make sure to properly design all of the places everyone lived. And that just, there's a, a level of hubris there, which now, of course, we can look at it and be like, oh, those people were so arrogant. But we, we do this in our own ways too. You know, we do this in our own ways where we fail to understand the complexity of the system. And But, but it's obvious in hindsight, the idea that you could design meaningfully design any consequential percentage of any city ever. It's just, it's just laughable. There's too many humans involved with too much free will. Right. You know, it, it's funny and, as an engineer, I, I, we ran on this all the time because you would get to a problem and then you would look and say, well, geez, if they had just looked ahead 20 years ago, <laughs> right. We if only they had seen the future, this would have been easy to solve. Yeah, yeah, like they could have fixed this. And so then we, in our infinite wisdom, take that insight and say, all right, well, we'll look forward 20 years and, uh, and, and we'll not allow this to happen. And, and then you, you realize, you know, tw- I'm, I'm now in my mid-40s. I can look back at the things I did 20 years ago as an engineer. You realize just how dumb I was, how wrong I was about the future, right? I mean, that... I, I think the arrogance of saying, well, why didn't people 20 years ago think of this? The arrogance is to believe they didn't, 
you know, or, or, or that, you know, that you, you well, would, that you can see the future better than they could have. Right. Yeah. Right. And that, and that if you were in their shoes 20 years ago, that you would not have made the same mistake. Of course you would have made the same mistake. They looked at the, everything around them. They did their very best job to imagine where it was all going to go. And they did the best they possibly could to skate where the puck was going. And it's just, we suck at that as a, as a species. We're terrible at it. I mean, you know, but, but, and I'm going to use this as our, as a lever to kind of try and get to, I think the idea that's the very heart of the end of chapter six and all of chapter seven is this idea of incrementalism. And you talk about this a lot and you talk about Daniel Burnham's quote to make no small plans, but that you had to uh, take only incremental actions. And I think, that's the biggest piece. And when we talk about the strong towns approach and the strong towns message, how are we going to fix this? We're going to have to fix it in little increments. And I think the reality is we would say very transparently because we don't know how to do things any better than that. But also, but I mean, but we mean that in, in more ways than one, not just, we don't know how to do any better than that because, Oh, we're, we're, we're nincompoops. We can't do any. No, no. We have ample evidence of history to show that when you approach things incrementally, it's, chaotic but smart you get the best outcomes this is the way that works best it was fascinating to me now that i've uh you know about 10 years ago now i made the full-time career change into software world and there was this sort of somewhat revolution in the software business a long time ago called the well i guess in the 90s so not that long ago it depends on who you ask a long time ago for it, technology in the software world it's, a long time ago in <laughs> the software world a long time ago which is called Agile, and most people have heard of this now because it's become quite popular. And the idea is this is contrasted to Waterfall, where in Waterfall software development, someone sits down, they come up with a perfect design, they write a detailed specification, and then you go try to build it. But software, much like you talked about in, in Taleb's uh, words, that the interdependencies, that the simple mechanical systems with few interdependencies can be understood, and you can confidently say, if I push this button, this will happen. But as you get more and more interdependencies, your ability to understand the system decreases to where you can't even confidently know what will happen. And software actually tends to be that way because of that complex network of interdependencies. So someone would sit down and come up with this great design, and then by the time you were done building that design, it turns out it didn't work. And it was very hard to say exactly why. And it took three times longer to build something. And when you got it, it wasn't really exactly what you wanted. It was kind of close. But by then, the whole technology world around you has changed. And now people want something different. And it's just a total failure. Let me interject, because I think what you're describing, and you and I have talked about this in the past, is the Obamacare uh, website rollout. I mean, I think think people will maybe remember that as, as one of these examples where all of a sudden the Obama administration, they look like fools because they, they had this big launch of this website and none of it worked. They were all waterfall, right? It's too, too, too much of a waterfall approach. Now the reality is there's a little bit of a spectrum. Okay. But in general, yes, that single giant launch for the entire country. That's a classic waterfall mistake, trying to do everything all at once, trying to have it all work perfectly according to some master plan. So agile is this relatively strong reaction against that, which says essentially you should have a, a like a direction you're going and you should make progress one week at a time and you should, or, or two weeks at a time, you sort of set this idea of sprints. And at the end of every iteration, you sort of stop pop up for air, look around and see like, are we still on the right track? Do we need to adjust the plan? But you don't really plan more than a few weeks out at a time in any kind of detail. You might have a a vision or a loose direction. You might even have a high level spec for what you're aiming at building, but that spec is always considered to be subject to change on this regular, every, like for most places, uh, my company uses one week, but a lot of places use two week 
cadence. Every two weeks, you go back and question the plan. Is this still the right plan? How much further do we have to go? And you just don't really try to organize your work in detail any further out than that. Now, software moves quickly. I, I'm not saying the whole world should only go in two-week increments. But the reality is that approach has taken over the entire industry because when you're dealing with complexity, it turns out that working in these small increments is much, much, much more productive and effective at creating value. Don't you have along the way too, though, like the minimum viable product keeps popping up again and again? It depends on what you're talking about. So so when you're creating something from scratch, there's this idea of the minimum viable product. And that is essentially, it's part of this agile idea, which is to say, uh, although the, the two ideas kind of came about separately, but they, but they support each other very well. And it is to say that you want to identify what is the absolute minimum thing we need and first build that and then put it out into the real world and have real people use it and react to it and respond to it because then they will tell us, okay, you know, this gizmo is great, but I need it to do this or I need it to do that or it doesn't work when I, you know – you know, I expected it would be waterproof and I used it out in the rain and now it's broken. And and those clues give you all kinds of information you would not have necessarily thought of. And it gives you the opportunity then to sit back and question your design and say, okay, well, we thought, you know, that this was going to be used for this or that. And in fact, it's not. Examples of this that are really easy, they're sort of famous, but you look at Apple products and everyone knows kind of the iPhone. Well, the first feature that was touted was the phone. And the ability to make phone calls and visual voicemail. And Steve Jobs spent most of the time on stage talking about what a great phone it is. Well, today's iPhone, they spend most of their time talking on stage about what a great camera it is. The first iPhone barely even had a camera. You know, Well, how did it get to be that way? Well, because they, they've worked really, really hard uh, to create what they felt like was the, the, the bare minimum that they could launch into the world successfully. And, and, but see, again, this is where I say it's a little bit of a spectrum. Because see, there were things that launched too soon, like and, you know, a decade or two before the Newton, yeah, the Newton came yeah. out and it was not enough. They thought they had it, the minimum viable thing, but it wasn't enough. So secretly in their skunk works, they spent another 10 years testing out things until they came up with the next iteration. But really you trace it further back and you go, Oh, well actually the next iteration after the Newton was the iPod. Right. And yeah, people very true. forget about yeah. that. But in fact, that was a whole lot of practice for their engineers to try and fit computers into your pocket and work on the battery and work on the sound and work on the storage and all these other problems that would have to be solved. you know. And then they come up with the next iteration and then now they've got one that runs on your wrist. And you look at the initial introduction of the watch and they, they focused on all kinds of things. But you know, health tracking and fitness was just one mere, you know, one mere mention of it uh, in that initial keynote. One of the many things the watch would do and now it's the primary focus of the device is it's good for your workouts and it will track your heart rhythms and all this. So it's become a health centric device. How? Well, one little step at a time, you know, one on a one year cadence in Apple's case. The incremental idea is probably the most controversial thing that comes out of strong towns. It's absolutely, it's the thing we get the most pushback on. I'm going to say this as a blanket statement, even though there's a, there's a lot of uh, variability in this, the more professional, expertise you have, the more you tend to reject the idea of incrementalism. So when I go talk to groups of, of non-technical people, they look at it and they're like, yeah, obviously, like, this is what you do. I'm, I'm, to- I'm on board. Like, th- let's do it. Come on, let's go out and build Jimmy's pizza. You know, <laughs> let's put up some pop-up shacks. When you go talk to technical people, they freak out. And the, the first thing they say is you're simple. Like you haven't, you haven't thought of, you haven't thought of all the things we've thought of. And then the second thing they say is like impossible. Like we can't, we can't do it this way. There's all these like things that prevent it. And 
I came to realize after having many of these conversations that what we're really dealing with, I'm going to say it this way, and I want you to, I want you to push back because I, I think you might <laughs> okay. have a little nuance. I, I feel like in a way we become too comfortable with underperformance. We, we become too comfortable with, we're willing to sacrifice the smart and we're willing to tolerate the dumb so that we can have order and predictability. And, and the, the idea of the, the chaos part of it just freaks us out to the point where, you know, we're willing to tolerate a lot of stupid, just a, a gargantuan amount of stupid. I don't know. Am, am I out of, you, you think I'm out of line with that or? No, I don't think so. I, I think there is another angle to the same thing. So I don't disagree with you at all, but I would say there's a different saying, which I find very helpful, which is to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think that we're in the in the profession, as you pointed out, the more technical someone is and the more high level up in the profession they are, I think as a profession, we're so heavily influenced by architecture and by the, the, the profession of architecture and by the idea of the design and the designer. And I think most people who come up in this field, and this certainly includes me when I was studying this in college, that you ha have these big dreams of I'm going to be the guy who designs the most beautiful fill in the blank, okay, whatever it is, like, and the design is going to be perfect, right? And so now, when you say we're going to fix this problem, and the way we, I propose we fix it is with this sort of incremental chaotic approach, and you say, well, what is it going to look like? Well, I don't know, it's going to be chaotic and messy, and there's <laughs> going to be flea markets and right. things. And the designer in us, the more technical you are, the more that designer inside goes, oh, no, 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 no. Look, we'll just, we can continue to make do with things as they are, okay, until we can get to the point that our perfect design can be implemented. And then that will fix everything, right? But in the meantime, let's not, like, I don't want to, because, you know, what you'd be doing if you embrace the chaotic but smart approach, you'd be letting go a lot of power. The city planners, the designers, the architects, the engineers, the whole what we call the ape, the architect, planner, engineer category of people would be in many ways sacrificing powers they have today. Now, they might be surprised at how much power they gained and the ability to you know, build a building in less than 10 years. But you don't know. It's the devil you know, right? And I think it's a very strong tendency to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I always try to challenge this by – when I talk to people who, who have this kind of objection to just say, look, the city doesn't work by design. The city works by algorithm. It is a complex adaptive system. You talk about that extensively in the book. It's better understood by going to Wolfram, Stephen Wolfram, and look at his cellular automata. Uh, automata. I said that poorly. but And you, know, you put in a couple basic rules and you watch the crazy geometry that comes out. And I think if we were to be responsible urban planners, engineers, and architects, we would try to understand what part of that role are we playing. And for the planners in particular – you should be trying to learn the algorithm that creates prosperous and healthy places and try to implement that algorithm and then take a deep breath and <laughs> like just let it go that you're not going to control what it looks like not really not the details as the architect you know you're going to shape your building you're going to shape the response to the surrounding area but the the building next to you may be tacky and you just you know what? It's if you do a really great job building your building, the one that you're going to last longer than the one next door. That's a victory for an architect, I would say. How about what if your test was instead of being in the architecture magazine, that your building was still around in a hundred years? Yes, exactly. To me, that's the that's the legacy you leave, right? But it's hard. 
there's a lot of human nature that's difficult for, I mean, because you're, you're not going to live to see it necessarily. I mean, you may, you may have work that's early in your career and that by the time you're late in life, you can look back and say like, oh yeah, that building is still beloved by people and it's probably never going to go. But you don't actually get to see 200 years from now that your tower is one of the few that's left. And I think that's hard. There's a constant tension between the incentives of everyone who has skin in the game, which is most of us, you know, and the whole challenge of society and the whole challenge that we as strong towns are trying to help people understand and respond to is how do we make those incentives align in a way? How do we make all those competing interests and competing needs align in a way that produces the most good for the most people? And it's hard, but the, the amazing thing is, you know, we had an algorithm that worked pretty well and that did a really good job for a really long time. And that algorithm wasn't designed on a master plan chalkboard somewhere by Einstein. It evolved. It evolved with millions of people doing little experiments and us collecting the results over generation after generation. And we haven't completely lost all that knowledge. We've lost a lot of it. We haven't completely lost all that knowledge. We also, more importantly, we know the way in which that knowledge was obtained. And we could choose as a society to go back to the knowledge that we still have and to resume that process of learning one little increment at a time. And we would have a lot of reason to believe that over time that would do the most good for the most people. And we would all be more and more prosperous as a result. And I think that is in a nut, that's the strong towns message. And that's the, the vision. It's hard because it's not as easy as saying we have this perfect design and we'll show it to you. And this is what it looks like. And don't you want to live there? It's, if we're honest with people, the truth is we don't know exactly what it will look like, but we have a lot of reason to believe that we'll all end up being better off and we'll all end up being happier and more prosperous together. And if you can just pause and step back and reflect and really just, and I think it's honestly, it's when you get out of your car and you start to just walk around the old places and the new places and just think hard about what were they working with and what are we working with and what were they able to do and what are we able to do? And you just think about it and you start to think maybe with all this dysfunction going on around us, maybe it's time for us to give the old way another shot. I feel like it's a, it's a discipline too, because our ancestors, the people who originally built San Francisco, the people who originally built my town uh, here in central Minnesota, their reach was constrained by their resources, right? Like, Absolutely. Like they, they could not go out and just reimagine everything and build it all tomorrow. And we can, I mean, we have, we actually have that capacity. I've said in the book, we have the capacity to blow ourselves up. You know, we do. I think it's the restraint. That's the discipline part. And I think that's the part where, when we rub up against people who are like, Hey, uh, climate change, we've got to go change everything tomorrow. Or, you know, we've got this big problem out here. Like everything needs to change affordable housing. Let's go, you know, rip it all down and rebuild it in this new, you know, new way. And I, I, I respect all of those motivations. It's the discipline. It's the, it's the prudent discipline to, I think, be humble enough to say, I actually don't know all the answers. Uh, that I, th I think is so challenging. I've heard you talk about this many times. You know, we don't fault the the first generation of people who had that capacity and then they used it and it didn't work out. So it's, it's easy to get mad and paint them as the villain, but they didn't really know how it was going to go. And I'd liken it to today's humans. So many of us struggle with our weight. We're the first humans 
you know, this last couple generations are the first humans who have so much more food than they need. I mean, not in the entire world. I recognize there are people who still deal with hunger, but, you know, most of the Western world, at least, I'll, I'll narrow it to that, have such an abundance of food that we find it difficult to not become unhealthily overweight. Why? Well, we don't have that restraint imposed on us, and we have to learn. And it's a great challenge for society. We have to learn how to put that restraint on ourselves by choice when it doesn't exist by necessity anymore. And I think that's what you're getting at, is that what we've learned is that when we, we have this power to do these massive sweeping changes all in one shot, but we've learned after a couple of generations of that, that it doesn't usually work out, and the unintended side effects are usually pretty bad. And so it's relearning that restraint, as you say. I have to run and pick up kids. Can I say just a couple things before we're done? For sure. Please do. I, I want to point out, I was reading Nassim Taleb, and I was getting into complexity and trying to really understand that. And it was more from a finance standpoint, really, than anything. Uh, back when I first met you, uh, you, and right, I yeah. met, you and I met in South Beach. If you remember, the talk that you gave there ultimately became your adaptive code talk. Yeah, um, that's right. You you were working on. In fact, you kind of cornered me and said, "I really want to talk to you about this because I had some <laughs> I, I had some insights on infrastructure that that you didn't have, and we kind of were able to help each other out a little bit because you had insights on architecture and, and other things that I didn't. So we 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 kind of collaborated a little bit. But I remember you had this adaptive code, and it stuck with me because what it was was you were the first person in the realm of city building that I ran into that was talking about complex adaptive systems. And I was dealing with it in finance and, and recognizing it in cities, but not able to make that bridge. And you were the one who made it for me. You were the one who kind of said like, here's what I'm struggling with. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not quite to the point of struggling with that yet, but I should be because that's the thing that we all need to be struggling with. <laughs> that's what we're grappling with. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to to say thank you, first of all, not only for, for just being a friend and, and all the insights over the years, but I just want to say, you know, at the end of this and, and publicly, I mean, I, I thank you in the book and it's very sincere because you have been a major influence on my way of thinking about things. And, you know, Strong Town's the organization, Strong Town's the movement. None of this stuff would have happened without, without you and without you framing things the way you have, not only in the complex adaptive world, but just in how, you know, what our strategy is as an as a organization. Thank you. And uh, I just want everyone to know how big a part of all this you've been. I feel like this is a book... I know you had to be nodding through this whole thing because this is, <laughs> you're not the, you're a great writer. You're not the writer in the sense that I am, but I, I had to believe that as you're reading this, you're like, yeah, you know, I could have written this book because these are all the things that you and I have literally discussed over and over and over. Well, uh, thank you very much, Chuck, for all the kind words. I appreciate it. I remember those conversations really well. I look back at my first version one of the adaptive code and I feel with, 15 years, 10 years hindsight, oh gosh, a lot of years of hindsight, that there was a mistake or two in there. But I do think the basic idea is still pretty good. And I think it, I, I'm really happy to see the Strong Towns movement take those same basic ideas and keep exploring them further. And that's why I felt this was such an important part of my life to, to stay involved and help kind of keep pushing this thing forward is we're going to get there one little tiny step at a time. And if you had told me 10 years ago where we would be with this movement today, I would have said, 
well, that sounds amazing. Like that signed me up for that. Now, how are we going to get there? And it's funny because even looking back on it in hindsight, I don't think I could even reconstruct a master plan out of it. You know, <laughs> we just, very true. We just, we lived that incremental value once one little step at a time and, and we're going to keep doing that. So that's very true. Uh, so last thing for you, uh, what's your favorite ride at California adventure? Is it the, uh, the guardians of the galaxy? <laughs> Oh man, it's not the Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy. It's got to be the uh, the big roller coaster. The uh, what is it? The Impossible, oh, the, the Incredibles. The Incredibles. Gosh, boy, I don't remember the names of roller coasters. Ever. It's all right. My all time favorite is the Rock and Roller Coaster oh, at it's MGM. The greatest. It's the greatest in, in Disney World. It's that, Hollywood Studios now, so you are you are yeah, dating yourself. Um, I know, I know. It's hard. Well, see, my kids are all real small, so right. but I did take them to the Magic Kingdom for the first time. That's awesome, uh, and they loved it. They loved it. My kids are five, three, and uh, now seven months old. So the uh, seven-month-old, I don't think remembered any of it. I but. think I think the best ride <laughs> for us was um, at the end of the day when it was pouring down rain and we were the last ones oh, to go yeah. on the uh, the rafting ride. I don't even remember what that ride is, but it's the ride where you're on a big raft so, and you get soaked. Yeah, and it was pouring rain. So Especially because, okay, for the audience, I know you got to run, but this is such a beautiful picture. For the audience's benefit, it's the very end of a long day at California Adventure. We've done all the rides. We've had great conversations. It's starting to rain and all the rides close. All the rides close like, what is it, 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock sharp, whatever it is, the time. And they, they shut the line. They won't let you in anymore. So we're running back towards the front of the park and we're thinking, well, maybe we'll do one last ride on Soren or whatever. And we just crossed the, the Whitewater Rapids ride and we hadn't done it earlier in the day because, of course, you don't want to walk around wet all day. We're already wet. That like but there's no more ride. We're not going to make it to the next ride because it's like they're closing the gate as we speak. So we dart in and just in front of us, there's two young ladies who I, I have no idea where they were from or what their names were, or how old they were, anything about them really other than two young ladies who were, were fairly quiet and they hop on the same ride with us. Ian especially. Uh, wait, no, 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 no. Ian wasn't there. Sorry. No, John Ian, especially. No, Ian was there. Absolutely, Ian was there. No, this one, Ian was there. Okay, all right, all right, sorry. So Ian, pitch, Ian pitch black. Is, yeah. is dressed well, is dressed well. He is dressed well. <laughs> you know, I'm in, I'm in flip-flops, and I don't know. Chuck and I are, are you know, representing the Midwest with our right. casual wear. But, um, you know, Ian in particular, and, and he's going down the ride, and, and it's just, oh, I don't know if this is a good idea. I'm starting to regret this. I'm starting to think we didn't think this through. And these two, <laughs> these two young ladies who are with us on the ride are just laughing their heads off uh -huh. as we all get. And they were wearing ponchos. This, yeah, so, yeah. so this is the real thing. They get on the ride and they're wearing ponchos. And I remember I looked over at them and they were like, I was like, ponchos, huh? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, so, so you're saying we're going to get really, really wet. And they're like, yeah. And then we did, and it was great. Except I actually didn't get it. I managed the, the ride spins around and around, and everyone got soaked pretty bad. And I only would say I was moderately splashed. So I felt like that was a home run. Well, there are all these water cannons going off, and it was pitch black. I mean, it was it was dark, and there were no lights. Like, I don't know if there's just no lights, or they shut them off because the park was closed. But we're riding through, like, the dark. Because <laughs> I want to do that again. And I hope I don't have to be there in the last one minute of the day to get that experience. But, uh, oh, we yeah. will do it. We will do it again soon. All right. Yeah. Thanks, friend. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. I'll talk to you later. Bye. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. 
Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, the city! The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.